Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Acts chapter 7. I'm going to cover verses 35 through 50. Our context is Stephen before the Sanhedrin defending himself. He was accused by fanatic supporters of the old Jewish rabbinic system of blaspheming God, of speaking against Moses and speaking against the temple. Now, we started out in our previous audio in the verses just preceding, listening to Stephen talk about Moses. And his theme is Moses was a prophet sent from God to deliver the people, and the people were stupid enough to reject him. The analogy that he's trying to make is the Sanhedrin were sent a prophet from God, namely Jesus, and a deliverer, just like Moses was a prophet and a deliverer. And like the early Jews rejected Moses, so the current Jews, the ones sitting on the Sanhedrin trying Stephen, these current Jews also are rejecting their Savior and Deliverer, Jesus. So he's going to, he's going to, he's, was talking about Moses, and we're going to pick up in this section, too, as he continues to talk about Moses and his rejection. And then Stephen is going to switch to the temple. That was the other charge against him, that he was going to tear the temple down. And he's going to start schooling the Sanhedrin on exactly where does God live? What does it mean to be God's temple? So we'll start with Acts 7, verse 35. Stephen is talking. He's talking to the Sanhedrin. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a redeemer by means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Now again, Stephen is trying to show that Moses rejected just like Jesus was rejected. And since you Sanhedrin people love Moses, maybe you should love Jesus too. The incident he's referring to is when Moses went out to see the people in, in the wilderness and saw a Hebrew, a, a, an Egyptian overseer abusing a Hebrew slave. He kills the overseer and hides him in the sand. The next day, he tries to break up a fight between two Israelites. And one of them said, you're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Who appointed you a ruler and a judge over me? And so you see the people, the slaves of Israel, rejecting the man who could deliver them. Remember, Moses was a big shot. He was, had power in, in, in Egypt, and they rejected him. And so Stephen in Acts 35, Acts 7:35 refers to Moses as this one God sent as a ruler and a redeemer. One, a redeemer is someone who buys somebody out of slavery. Moses led the people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And Stephen is saying, this same Jesus could lead you out of slavery, Sanhedrin, if you would just believe in him. Now, Stephen says that God was sent as a, excuse me, Moses was sent by God as a ruler and a redeemer by means of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Now, this is referring to the burning bush incident, which happened in Midian, which is right next to Mount Sinai, down there in the Sinai Peninsula. And here's the quote from Exodus 3, 2. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. And later on, as you read, this is when God sends Moses and says, you're going to be the deliverer of Israel. So this is what Stephen is referring to. Now, who the angel of the Lord was in the bush, I discussed that in previous audio. I'm going to assume it was Jesus because usually when you see angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's an epiphany of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. It doesn't really matter. It was God in some person. And we see that when God sent Moses as a redeemer, as Stephen correctly points out, that shows that Moses is a type of Jesus who is also a redeemer, someone who delivers people from the bondages of being in debt. We're in debt to the 
holy requirements of the law. We're in bondage to that. We can be redeemed for that because Jesus pays the price to get us out of heart, so to speak. Acts 7.36, Stephen continues, This man, referring to Moses, led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So like Jesus, Moses led, well, like Jesus would have led the Jews if they'd have led him, Moses led the children of Israel out of their bondage. Wonders and signs, of course, refers to the ten plagues and so forth. Acts 7.37, Stephen continues, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Now, this is a very famous reference to Moses, or to uh, Jesus as a prophet like Moses. The site is from Deuteronomy 18.15. This is where Stephen quotes from, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Which, of course, the Sanhedrin was not listening Peter had quoted this same verse in his Pentecostal sermon in Acts 3, verses 22 and 23. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him and everything he will say to you. And everyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. So this prophet is like Moses, is referring to Jesus. How is he like Jesus? How is he like Jesus? Well, John Gill sums it up nicely. Because of the intimacy of communication with the Father. Numbers 12, 6-8 says this. He said, listen to what I say. This is God speaking. He said, listen to what I say. If there's a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I make myself God known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. And as you know, visions and dreams are not all that clear sometimes. Verse 7. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. I speak with him directly as opposed to visions and dreams. I speak with him directly, openly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So you see, Jesus has face-to-face -face communication with God even as Moses did. A prophet like Moses. Jesus was a prophet like Moses. I guess Moses didn't have to search the oracles to see in what manner and what time the Messiah was coming, as Peter famously says in one of his letters. So... Stephen is continuing to rehabilitate, to try to rehabilitate Jesus in the eyes of the Sanhedrin, talking about how Jesus fulfilled this prophecy about Moses. And of course, they're not going to listen. They're going to kill Stephen. But Stephen gave a great defense. Acts 7:38. He is the one. This is Jesus. He is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. Spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. We'll talk about this angel in a minute. And he is the one who's with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Again, Stephen is singing the praises of Moses. Now, how was Moses in the wilderness with an angel who spoke to him? Who was this angel? Well, here's some options. NIV Study Bible mentions this, as John Gill does too. Option number one, Moses received the law through mediation of an angel. Now, this would have to be according to the Jewish interpretation. That's what the rabbis were saying. Just like Moses was originally called by an angel. Remember in the burning bush, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And so the Jews said also Moses received the law through the mediation of an angel. Well, I don't think that's the right answer in my humble opinion. Here's option number two. This angel who appeared together with Moses in the wilderness was the angel of the Lord who spoke to Moses in the burning bush, which was near Mount Sinai. 
Let me reread the relevant passage in Exodus 3, 1 through 2. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, that's the wilderness of Midian, came to Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him. So those two verses show that the appearance of the burning bush, let me finish reading verse 2. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. All right, so there we have Mount Sinai the wilderness of Midian, and the angel of the Lord all tied together. And so I think that's what Steve is referring to here in verse 38 in Acts 7. He, Moses, is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. The angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai it was the angel of Jehovah, angel of the Lord, it says, and I believe that that was Jesus. And this Jesus was with Moses in the congregation in the wilderness, remember, the rock they were, what did Peter, Paul say in Second Corinthians about they followed the rock in the wilderness? That was Jesus. The burning, the, the Shekinah glory that appeared before, that lit, lit up their way as they as they traveled. And, then, and Paul refers to that as the rock in the wilderness that they followed. So Moses was with this angel who spoke to him in the burning bush at Mount Sinai. Moses was with this angel, this angel of Jehovah, who is Jesus, whom you guys are rejecting, Sanhedrin. Stephen goes on in verse 38. He, Moses, received living oracles to give to us. That's referring to the law on Mount Sinai. Stephen refers to that as living article oracles. Now, these living articles were received under the mediation of angels, plural. And so I think that sometimes the interpretation of who this angel was on Mount Sinai is confused with the angels who mediated the law to Moses from God. Let me read the scriptures that say that, Acts 7:53, which we'll get to in our next audio. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet have not kept it, Galatians 3:19. Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator, Hebrews 2, 2. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression or disobedience received a just punishment, etc. So the scripture clearly says the law was mediated through angels, or spoken through angels, let's put it this way. Maybe I shouldn't say mediated, I should say spoken by angels. And I think that that's, a different, that's something different than here, because that's angels plural. Here, Stephen talks about the angel singular who spoke with him on Mount Sinai, and I believe that's referring to Jesus, the angel of Jehovah, the angel of the Lord. All of this, by the way, is controversial. You know, the scholars love to bounce this backwards and forwards. All right, these living oracles that were transmitted through angels, that's the Old Testament Mosaic law. You notice that these laws are called living. And that's kind of interesting to me because Paul said the Old Covenant brought death. That which I wanted to do, I could not do. And I have been locked up uh, into, under sin because of the law. And, you know, all of Romans, Romans 7. <laughs> <laughs> the law bringing death. But yeah, here the oracles are called life. Well, here, how can we explain this? Well, here's some options. Option number one, John Gill said that the reason that Moses said it was, that Stephen said it was a living oracles is because that the law consisted of living oracles was because the law was delivered viva voce with an articulate voice and an audible sound. It's living because a living voice. God orally gave the law to Moses as he spoke to him directly not in prophets, not in visions and dreams. Well, that might be. Here's an, I don't think, though, that's what Stephen was meaning here. Or it could be the Reformed view of the law as a rule of life. And let me give you a Reformed scholar Gill's opinion here. 
referring to this phrase, living oracles. Quote, the Vulgate, Latin, and Ethiopic versions render it the words of life, not that the law gives life or points out the way of life and salvation to sinful men. It is to them all the reverse. It is the killing letter in the ministration of condemnation and death. It is indeed a rule of life or, a, or of walk and conversation to men, and it promises life in case of perfect obedience. But this is impracticable by fallen men, and therefore there is no life nor righteousness by the law. Well, now, Gill spends most of his time talking about how the living oracles produce nothing but death. But then he says in one phrase here, but it is indeed, it is indeed a rule of life or a way to walk by. This is the reform idea of the third use of the law. The ceremony on civil law has been done away with the New Testament, and now the moral law perdures, and we follow the moral law in order to have life. I do not believe in that. I'm, New Covenant the I'm a New Covenant theology guy. I think this is totally off base. But I mention it to you just to show you how the problem is. It, right there in the quote of that Reformed theologian, we have, he talks about death, 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 talking about the living oracles. Well, I would say this, that in the Old Testament, the law was a rule of life. It not only showed their, the Israelites their sin, it also showed them the way they should walk or the way they should live. That's in the Old Testament, though. In the New Testament, Christians' rule of life is the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. But in the Old Testament, it was the law of Moses. So I think you could say when Stephen calls them living oracles, he was talking about the Jew, Old Testament Jews. Yeah, if they followed the, the Old Testament law the best way they could, they'd have life as opposed to dying under the idolatrous ministration of the pagans in the promised land as they were going in. Here's a good way to summarize that from Adam Clark, quote, talking about living oracles. The doctrines of life, those doctrines, obedience to which entitled them by the promise of God to a long life upon earth, which spoke to them of that spiritual life which every true believer has in union with his God and promised that eternal life which those who are faithful unto death shall enjoy with him in the realms of glory. So, yeah, in the Old Testament, the law was the only way you were going to find life. It pointed out that you were a sinner. It pointed out that you were in need of a Redeemer. And then all the blood sacrifices also pointed out that you needed blood sacrifice to atone for your sins. And all of that was fulfilled when Jesus came. So, indirectly at least, the Mosaic Law was a living oracle, a law of life. We now move to Acts 7, verses 39 and 40. Stephen continues, Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. And again, he's talking about how people didn't obey Moses, and he's making a parallel with the current Sanhedrin who were also unwilling to obey their Redeemer. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, but pushed him away, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So Stephen points out a very despicable portion of the history of Israel when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law of God and the people got impatient and they made them, made them a golden bull, coerced, or I should say impelled Aaron to help them make that golden bull. They got up and sang and danced in an idolatrous festival and just basically made total idiots out of themselves. They rejected Moses, just like you guys in the Sanhedrin are rejecting Jesus. This is, you can go to Exodus 32 starting in verse 1 to read the story of this. I'll read verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So they didn't trust Moses. They turned their back on him and did everything that Moses said not to do. 
You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, no, we have to have a golden bull. Stephen is making another jab at his unbelieving Jewish audience. His hearings, his hearers were on the same downward path as the idolatrous Jews of the Exodus. Why did they think that Moses had disappeared on them? Because he spent so much time up on the mountain listening to God. I forgot how it was a long time, at least 40 days, I think. Acts 7, verses 41 through 43. They even made a calf in those days, offered sacrifice to the idol, and were celebrating what their hands had made. Then God turned away and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. House of Israel, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness? No, you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship. So I will deport you beyond Babylon. Now what Stephen is doing here is quoting like a good Jewish person who knows the Jewish scriptures, he's quoting the book of Amos, the minor prophet Amos, Amos 5, verse 25 through 27. I'm going to read it to you. You'll notice there's a, a few differences which I'll point out. House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? But you have taken up Sakuth, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, images you have made for yourselves. So I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Yahweh, the God of hosts, is his name. He has spoken. Well, the first thing we notice that in Amos, he accuses the Israelites of worship in Sakuth, whereas Stephen says that, in quoting Amos, says that the Israelites were worshiping Molech, not Sakuth. And also Rephan, and Stephen says that it was the star god the Israelites were worshiping, and Amos says it was Kaiwan. Well, names of foreign gods are notoriously difficult, just like in any language. To get a name from one language to another is very difficult. Greek, for example, my gosh, it's hard to even know how to pronounce Greek names and as they are translated into English, how to pronounce them. It's, everybody pronounces them different. It's just total chaos. Well, Adam Clark says that you've got these different names of the gods, Sakuth and Kaiwan, is due to the Septuagint um, translation of the Hebrew, which then, of course, makes its way into English, and the Septuagint, and it got lost in the translation. And there are other translation problems, too, which Clark goes into because he's a polymath scholar. I don't understand all that. I just take his word for it. And so that explains why we got different names of the gods. Now, there's another difference, too. Amos says that because of your idolatry, God's going to take you out beyond Damascus. I will send you into exile beyond Damascus or over to far away to Damascus. Well, Damascus is right north and east of Israel and presently Syria. In fact, Damascus is still there. It's the oldest city in the world I read somewhere. Well, that's what Amos says. But now when Stephen quotes Amos, he says, I will deport you beyond Babylon. It's not an exact quote. Now, we, of course, know that New Testament writers as well as New Testament characters of Stephen quote the Old Testament somewhat loosely. This is a fairly tight quote, except for that one thing of I will depart you beyond, I will exile you beyond Babylon. All right, so how do we, here's some three options how to solve that. Stephen wants to refer to the final exile of Israel. This is option number one. Stephen wants to refer to the final exile of Israel, which is 587-86 B.C. And, of course, that was Babylon. But Amos was referring to the Assyrian exile, which is 722 B.C., of the northern kingdom. Stephen was talking about the southern kingdom because that would be more relevant to the Sanhedrin he was talking to. So that would mean he kind of misquoted him a little bit just to make the point. Well, now you get into the... the perennial question of how does the new how do the new testament writers quote the old testament there's a whole body of theology on that which i don't really understand yet so here's the second option 
Damascus was in the area called Babylon. Well, Damascus is is in Syria, and Syria is right next to Babylon. If you look at the map, as you're going from west to east, Damascus was west of Euphrates, Babylon was the east of Euphrates, so that kind of cuts against that solution. But maybe people, John Gill says that people considered Damascus in the area of Babylon because it was all the desert area to the east of Israel, and so it's the same thing, just stated a little bit differently when Amos says that the exile will be to Damascus, and Stephen says the exile will be to Babylon. It's just talking about the same area. Well, that's option number two. Here's option number three mentioned by both John Gill and Adam Clark. When Stephen says, in quoting Amos, says beyond Babylon, it's absolutely true, because if you go beyond Babylon, you also, a fortiori, go beyond Damascus, because Damascus is the first step on the way to Babylon. Stephen knew that to be a fact, so states it here. Here's a quote from Adam Clark, the Holy Spirit, in his further revelations, has undoubted right to extend or illustrate those which he had given before. This case frequently occurs when a form of prophecy is quoted in later times. He's referring to the sometimes willy-nilly and chaotic way New Testament writers quote the Old Testament prophets, which creates problems in Western minds trained in the evils of plagiarism and 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 trained to put quotes in the right, quotation marks in the right place and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, that's option number three. Stephen says the exile is going to be beyond Babylon, and Amos says it's going to be beyond Damascus. Well, they're both saying the same thing, because if you go beyond beyond Babylon, you also go beyond Damascus. They're in the same general direction, so there's no contradiction. All right, that's a minor problem. I'll leave it there with you. When Stephen says that the Israelites were going to worship. God turned the Israelites away and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. That host means stars, the sun and the moon and the stars, as John Gill points out. That's typical. Also, another little point, Stephen quotes the book of the prophets, as is, it is written in the book of the prophets. Why is Amos called the book of the prophets? Well, because Amos was one of the minor prophets, and the minor prophets were held together in one one bundle because they were so small, It was there was fear that the books might become lost if they weren't kept together. This is John Gill points that out and Adam Clark also. Twelve prophets were all twelve minor prophets were all together in one book, so Stephen calls them the Book of the Prophets. Now this Moloch that the Israelites are said to worship, he's sometimes called Milcom. He was the god of the Ammonites. Gill says he's also the same as Baal. Now that's one thing about pagan idols, I learned this a long time ago. Oh my gosh, they, they borrow from one another. One pagan group borrows from another pagan group to change the name a little bit. Maybe they change the characteristics another bit. There's not a standard hagiography, if you will, of the of the of the pagan gods, and that's true even of the Greek gods. They didn't really get fixed until about I get the time of Homer, I guess, in about 800 or so B.C. But before then, there were gods all over the place. And in fact, Aphrodite is said to come from Astarte, who was the Phoenician um, ancient Near Eastern god that shows up in the scriptures all the time. So, so anyway, Moloch is a particularly bad god. He's probably referring to the god of the Ammonites. Or he could be the same as Apis or Serapis of the Egyptians, John Gills suggests. But at any rate, Moloch is famous for this because children had to pass through the fire before him. In other words, people were offering up human sacrifices to Moloch. And so that's pretty objectionable, incredibly obnoxious to run after Moloch instead of God. Most people think that's what pass through the fire means. You had to pass through the fire before Moloch. However, some people say that parents just took the kids and waved them in front of the fire, waved them through the fire, kind of like a wave offering. That's debated. 
I suspect they were sacrificing their children, knowing the way the pagans were back then. Now, one final point here. Verse 42, Stephen says, quoting again, quoting Amos, Stephen said, Did you bring me, talking to the Israelites, did you bring me offerings and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness? Did you bring me, Yahweh, offerings and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness? And it's a rhetorical question, expecting no for an answer. And in fact, verse 43 answers that question, No, you took up the tent of Moloch. Well, that sounds like the Israelites never did any sacrifices to God. Well, actually, they did. They did bring sacrifices. It was set up in the Old Testament tabernacle, and it was, they were told how to sacrifice, and they sacrificed. So what does Amos mean here, and Stephen quoting Amos, that the Israelites never brought sacrifices to God? Well, it's because they didn't do it with an upright heart. They were going through the motions. Their heart was with Moloch. Their heart was with Raphan, the star god. Their heart wasn't with God. Now, I don't want to make an absolute statement here. I'm sure this is talking in generalities. I'm sure there were individual Israelites who sacrificed with a pure heart. I imagine Moses did. But for the most part, the Israelites were a bunch of God-forsaken idolaters. Except that God didn't forsake them because of his grace and mercy. Chastised them. Made them all die in the wilderness before they got in, unless they were under 20 years old when all the dancing before the golden calf took place. By the way, that golden calf was probably instigated by the Egyptian god, bull god, what was his name, Apis, Seraphis, I forgot. Uh, it was a, anyway, he was a, a, a bull god, and the Israelites, not knowing what to do, went back to what they were used to, went back to the same old idols that were in Egypt, and they made a, a bull. They were still living under the rules and the culture of their previous existence, like a lot of Christians I know. We want to live like Americans instead of like Christians. Let's go to verses 44 through 46. Stephen continues, Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness. Now, Stephen is switching now from Moses and how the people rejected Moses. Now he's going to switch to the other charge that was against him. Remember, he was against Moses, and that was one charge, against Moses and therefore against God and blaspheme and, and, a, and a blasphemer. The other charge against him was that he said he was going to tear the temple down. Same thing the Jews accused Jesus of during his trial. And so now Stephen's going to speak to that false charge, starting in verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses, he, God, who spoke to Moses, commanded him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn received it, and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers until the days of David. He found favor in God's sight, that's David, found favor in God's sight and asked that he, David, might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Now Stephen condenses a lot of Old Testament history here. He says that his ancestors had the tabernacle in the wilderness during that 38, 39 years they wandered around, the 40 years in the wilderness. He called it the tabernacle, tabernacle is tent of the testimony. The testimony were the two stone tablets that had the ten words, the ten commandments on them. Exodus 25:16 says this, Put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. So you see, that's why it's called the ark of the testimony, because it's the ark of the tablets. Exodus 25:21, Set the mercy seat on top of the ark and put the testimony that I will give you into the ark. Put the tablets of stone that I will give you into the ark. Well, since the ark is in the, in the tent, in the tabernacle, therefore the tent is called the tabernacle of the testimony, because the tent contained the ark, and the ark contained the tablets of the law. And the tablets of the law were called the testimony. Therefore, the temple is called. The, therefore, the tabernacle is called the tabernacle of the testimony. Now, Stephen here is talking about a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. He mentions the tabernacle of the wilderness. 
And then he goes down to David and said, David asked for a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. A tabernacle is where somebody lives. A tent, a temple is where a God lives. And so this is basically talking about is where does God live? That's what that's what the what Stephen's aiming at here. Now what he's doing is showing that the sanctuary had moved around. So you can't say that God lived in one place like you Jews are saying that he lives right here in the temple and you and you don't want God to live here anymore. No. Stephen is saying, hey, the sanctuary moved all around the wilderness. That means God was living in a different place at a different time. He didn't live in just one place. And he can't be worshipped there at one place, in one f form. For example, you have a movable tabernacle in the wilderness, and then you've got a fixed temple projected by David and built by Solomon. Stephen mentions that too. And Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this, Even that temple, magnificent though it was, was not the proper resting place of Jehovah upon earth as his audience and the nations had all along been prone to imagine. In other words, the Sanhedrin had long thought that this is it. This is where God lives, and this temple means everything. And the Shekinah glory had left the temple in Jerusalem a long time before. All it was was a big, beautiful hunk of stone. There was no God in there. There was no Holy Spirit in there. There was no Shekinah glory in there. The ark wasn't even in there. It had left. It was just, it was just a big public work done by Herod the Great. And here these darn Sadducees were just worshiping this place like it was everything. And Stephen is trying to point this out to them. You tell me I want to tear this building down. Point number one, I never said I wanted to tear it down, but point number two is you guys are putting too much emphasis on this as opposed to God. Acts chapter 7, verses 47 through 50. But it was Solomon who built him a house. In other words, David projected it, Solomon carried it out. But it was Solomon who built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? And the Lord make heaven and make it the earth. And so Stephen finishes his argument saying, well, we've got the tabernacle in the wilderness where God lives. Then we had Solomon who, who, where he lives. But well, let's go to Isaiah the prophet, and we see that actually God doesn't actually live in that temple that Solomon made. He doesn't need a place to live in. He doesn't need a place to keep the rain off, off of his head. Let's find that quote from Isaiah. That's Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house could you possibly build for me? And what place could be my home? My hand made all these things, and so they all came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. And so what Isaiah is saying here is that God rules everywhere. Quit trying to build him a temple. This is what I always like to say, too, about the early church. Where were the temples in the early church? For 300 years, they didn't even have church buildings. It wasn't until Constantine turned over some pagan basilicas to the church that the church started building these monstrosities, these ecclesiastical warehouses. And today, even today, people will say, oh, we've got to give to the building fund. We've got to build this big big." big temple here, this big Protestant temple here, this big mega church so we can show how we love God. And every time I hear that, I always keep my wallet in my pocket. And I never contribute to these monstrosities. And when Isaiah, and I, if somebody ever asked me for the money, I would just say this, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house could you possibly build for me? <laughs> and what place could be my home? It's a great answer to the fundraising dunnings that these materialist mega church pastors who sell their soul out try to build their their gravestone, their epitaph to show what a great Christian they are and, and what great things they've done for the kingdom of God. And all they do is just waste their time. This is the human condition, folks. We love temples. I'm, when I say we, I mean we human beings are living in the flesh 
apart from God. The church of Jesus Christ is the temple of God, and the church is all over the world, and that's where God lives. He lives everywhere, all over the world, in his church, not in these piles of brick and mortar. Now, it's interesting here that Stephen quoted Isaiah as saying that God doesn't need a place to live, but he could have quoted Solomon himself. We see in 1 Kings 8.27, this is Solomon speaking after he had built the temple. But will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less the temple I have built. So even Solomon admitted that the, the magnificent temple that he had built was not really God's dwelling place. Even Solomon, that would have been a perfect thing for Stephen to quote, right on point. But the question is, is why didn't he? Well, Clark says that Stephen is getting ready to, made an allusion to that by quoting Isaiah, but the Jews probably cut him off in their wrath. That's just a speculation, although it's probably reasonable. Luke doesn't explicitly say that Stephen was cut off by the wrath of the Sanhedrin, but it's possible. Clark says that Stephen gets kind of rough in verses 51 through 53, which we'll talk about next audio, when he says, for example, in verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, and he really tees off on them. And so that's maybe why he got so mad is because they cut him off when he's getting ready to quote Solomon. When so when Solomon himself, even the temple I built, ugh, can't control, control contain you because even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you. Jameson Fawcett and Brown disagrees with this speculation, as interesting as it is. He says this, quote, It has been thought that symptoms of impatience and irritation in the audience induced Stephen to cut short his historical sketch. But as little farther light could have been thrown upon Israel's obstinacy from subsequent periods of the national history on the testimony of their own scriptures, we should view this as the summing up, the brief import of the whole Israel, Israel, Israelitish history. God, what a word. Israelitish history. The summing up of all of Israel's history. Grossness of heart. Spiritual deafness. Continuous resistance of the Holy Ghost. Down to the very council before whom Stephen was pleading. That could very well be, well, whatever it was, whether he was cut off or whether he was summing up, it's very clear that what Stephen was doing is showing that the whole history of Israel has been nothing but a bunch of obstinate resistance to God, a bunch of blasphemy, a bunch of low-life rebellion against the God who had given them the oracles of life and had chosen them before all the other nations of the world. And what gratitude did they show? They killed the Messiah that God had sent to them. So, in our next audio, we'll see T Stephen summarizing his defense. And, of course, I think he knew that he was going to get killed. It didn't matter how much d reasoning he gave them. They weren't going to listen because it was a kangaroo court like all of the Sanhedrin's courts. However, his eloquent defense teaches us and shows us how to stand firm in the face of persecution and how to just to speak the truth regardless of the cost. And so now we remember Stephen. A billion people on earth today remember Stephen. Who remembers the Sanhedrin? Who were they? A bunch of nothing burners. I hope you enjoyed this audio. I hope you stay tuned for the next one.